Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, episode 143. Today, it's just going to be Joe and myself, and we're going to get into a, a fun topic. It's something that Joe knows more about than probably just about anybody I've ever met, and something that I've learned a lot from along the way. And that is entrepreneurship, founding ideas, and creating something from nothing in the business world. So, Joe, how are you doing today? And happy Friday. Yeah, well, doing great, Don. Uh, you know, I love this time of year as the spring is upon us in a very real way. You know, I actually went out for a run this morning and I just sort of so appreciated being outside and not freezing to death and <laughs> enjoying the green trees and the blue skies and like, oh my gosh, I felt so alive. So yeah, doing great and looking forward to this conversation. Um, yeah. It's fun it's, to get into it. It's, it's been interesting, the weather here up in the high country of Colorado, because it's been raining nonstop for a week and a half. Wow. And that's that's pretty unusual for us to get this much rain. Um, I was even in Denver yesterday, and all the local streams and tributaries were really flooded. So uh, there's a lot of, a lot of moisture in, in Colorado right now. And what I've recently learned, which surprised me, is... Wildland firefighters and forest officials actually do not love all the moisture this time of the year. Because what that happen what happens is, is it spurns the growth of all the things that will die later in the year and it oh, creates boy. more kindling for forest fires. So it's kind of counterintuitive that all of this rain actually could be setting us up for a worst wildfire season. So just a little thing I've learned this week, listening to the news and, and, and hearing uh, interviews with local wildland firefighters. Complexity, huh? That's what we're yeah. in the middle of all the time. Yes, yes. All right. Well, that's a great word, complexity. I think it uh, probably transitions really nicely to talking about um, starting a business, creating a product, doing anything. So let's let's get into that. You You've obviously, you've been the CEO, I think, what is it, five companies, um, you founded your own company, you've written a book, you've, you've started so many ideas. And I think for a lot of people, the hardest part of anything is taking it from idea to a thing. So yeah. let's start there. And what, what is your process and what is your recommendation that, you know, if you talk to somebody that they have this, such a great idea, what are the steps that you would walk them through? to getting that idea out of their head and maybe on paper or out into the world? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I'm going to just start by saying, no matter what you do, it's always going to take longer and cost more than you want. Let's just put that out there. <laughs> That's like the first rule of like the law of gravity. You, know, you can't turn the gravity off and there is no one who ever made it go faster and have it cost less. And if they <laughs> tell you they did, they're actually not telling you the full truth. And so I think, you know, like, oh, my God, look at Amazon. Well, you know, it started, what, 35 years ago? You know, so like you, you can't look at the end of the story. So just that's okay. It's not a bad part of the story to say it's going to take longer. You just have to have expectations around that. So that's one thing just to remember. I think that what typically happens is one of two reasons we want to start something. We have a good idea to do something better. Or we have a passion about something that we think more people should want to do that the way we do. So, oh my gosh, I think here's a better running shoe. 
I'm a runner. I want to go make that. Or I have a new idea. Maybe we'll call it a diet pill that solves a problem that no one else has solved. And so both of those are very legitimate ways and reasons to go start something. But each of them bring a different need in the beginning to figure out what do you got to figure out? Because like a lot of this really, you know, there's a, there's the simplest thing that I always, the first time I meet an entrepreneur, I say that like, I'm a pretty simple guy. I just know math. X times Y. How many customers times what price? How much of those can I do? Like forget even that you have to acquire a customer. You know, at some point, every business turns into a math equation. And so what we'll talk about over our time together today is, you know, how do you in these early stages, because we're really excited, make sure that what we don't do is just only let the excitement be sort of the motivation, that we build Mm -hmm. substance below that so that it can turn into a going concern, a business that can continue on and that can, you know, maybe pay for my lifestyle or make money. Yeah, so let's let, let's talk about that. I think it's it's really interesting that you you said it's going to take longer and, and cost more. And I, I kind of want to dig into the time element because I think a lot of people don't realize the time investment it's going to take to manifest an idea into reality. So, what what thoughts have you been through in your career, and what process have you gone through to kind of lay out that timeline so that you know you're being realistic? Because I I've I've started ideas, and it's so easy to get wrapped up in the excitement and feel like I need to go a million miles an hour. And then all of a sudden you realize you're, you're so far off base. You're not even on, on track with anything. So what, what process do you work through to make sure you're, you're moving in a, in a positive direction, but also not moving so fast that you've gotten off track. No matter what you ever do, there's always a customer in the middle of this. All right, that's where we got to start. Like, who's the customer? Who's this target customer? What do they look like? What do they need? Why do they need this? How could I sell it to them? So every step along the way, we always have to just keep reminding ourselves of that. So that's the first thing. So, oh my gosh, there's a thousand people who need this. That's great. The second is, well, you probably want to get feedback from the market. So you start off with this idea of a minimum viable product. What's the least that I could give someone that they can start to validate that my belief system on their needs is actually true? And so, yeah, I might actually, you know, make just a prototype piece of software. I might actually create a new lemonade and I just don't have packaging. I put it in mason jars. I can do anything that allows me to test that product with some people. Now, early on, you're going to find sort of the raving fans and the zealots who are on your side, and they're going to make you look like, oh my God, I hit the right place because you're talking to people who you know, who have this need. And so that's great for that initial feedback. But over time, what we have to do is we have to find out, you know, is this a product that has a larger market than the people who we already know would buy something like this? And so this is somewhat of this iterative process, understand who your customer is, build a minimum viable product, go to the market and get some feedback, take that feedback and push it back into this process. Did I really understand the customer and their needs? How did this product meet it? And continue that iteration for the early stage of this cycle. And so you've mentioned a lot about 
what sounds like working with other people in this process. And sometimes that can be really tricky to know, especially if you have a new amazing idea, who the right people are, who, like, who to go to for help. And I, and I know you've partnered with many people in your career. You've, you've sought out resources and partnerships. So how do you ensure that the people that you're working with are working with you instead of maybe against you or generally just have your best interest in mind. And because it can be really tricky that everybody's looking to, to ride the coattails of somebody in this, this world, it seems like. So what do you do to protect your interests in, in that environment? Well, I mean, there's, that's, that's a big one and, and probably more <laughs> complex than we'll catch every one of the points. But I think a couple of things, one, you know, in the beginning, you do want to think about protecting, you know, your intellectual property, what you're building and developing. And so having some documentation early on that sets a framework for the people who are getting involved, that you have clarity. Oh, here's the legal agreement between you and me, whether you're a customer or you're a supplier or a partner to me, so that you know, there isn't a lot of, you know, said to say, there's not a lot of trust me in this. And it's not even expected. You don't want to say, oh, I got you trusting you. It's like, no, why don't we have a piece of paper that outlines the form of the relationship? Because if we can agree on that, then we can probably work together and we have some protection. So I think that's part one is building this discipline early on. <clears throat> the second part of the discipline is money is going to play a role in this at some point. And in this form, you want to really be careful about where that money comes from and what the expectations are for how that money plays a role. And so in that regard, I think that that's similar to setting the proper expectations. You know, you probably never get a return on this investment or here are the risks that you take on. So being really clear on expectations with someone so that if they're involved and again, document this. And the third is on the business partner side, you know, if someone's helping you build something, I don't know, they're making some part of the equation or otherwise, I think getting a sense of not just the early costs of doing this, but what it'll be over time so that you have a better sense. Don't just ask the question for today, but ask the questions mm -hmm. for how will this evolve? So you start to understand that you didn't set yourself up for, you know, I don't know, you got yourself in a trap because they didn't tell you all of the detail of the issues that might come from this relationship. So some of this, like why does it take longer isn't because we want to slow down. It's being thoughtful about each of these steps along the way so that we build really good integrity in the business that we're building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I, I always like to, to pull out a few words that you use. And I think integrity is a, is a really important word because New businesses, there's probably a lot of opportunities to maybe cut the line a little bit, choose mm. a path that could take you maybe to market a little bit faster, but are you are you doing it in a way that is using that word integrity? So do you have advice for for companies that have maybe thought of something that have ideas and they're put in this position of of integrity of, okay, I could cut the line and be here, or I could work with integrity and be here. It's, it's hard in the business world, right? Like, especially yeah. when you see um, leaders like a, a recent president that have 
on paper of a billion dollars, but haven't done it with integrity. So that is such a tricky word, I think, in the business world. And I'd love to hear your take on how you personally operate with integrity and ways that new businesses and new founders, entrepreneurs can ensure that they're not straying off that path. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, there are some companies, right, they do a really good job in the beginning of defining a set of core values that they live to. Mm-hmm. And then you have to uphold those core values yourself and for your company. And then ultimately you represent those core values back into the market. And if those are to be the foundation for what you're building, then everyone would understand them. And so in that regard, it doesn't mean that you can't create a prototype that might fall apart on a person's foot, for example, but you would explain mm-hmm. that to them. Here's the risk of trying this product at this point in time. It might fall apart. We don't actually know if the glue is going to work on this outsole. But the integrity or the values that you defined come from then how do I then talk to you? What are the expectations that I set? How do I hold you accountable or me accountable to that, right? And so that's the part one. The part two is if you're missing on expectations and what you have to do is just hold sort of like the value system all the time. So someone comes back and says, I don't think that this product delivered on what you told me it was going to. And you should say, that's fine. Then I will like give you your money back. I'm not going to, I'm not going to burden you with an issue that I created. And I think a lot of trust can come from that. And so, you know, as much as anyone can ever say that they sort of grew something fast, growth is episodic, you may get highs and lows, but it's always going to take pretty much the same amount of time. So you're better off setting that foundation in the beginning sure. for these expectations so that when you do get to, you know, a much more substantive phase, you know, it's been built like with this integrity. Right. So you... You've been consulting with a few founders and a few entrepreneurs that are building companies. And I, I always love digging into hidden challenges. Like what have you experienced are the things that nobody is prepared for when they found a company that, that you're seeing that you're trying to talk people through right now? Customer acquisition cost is the biggest problem. So there are some formulas that you just don't want to believe are going to be true. You think that you're going to get the viral effect of this wonderful product that your raving fans loved, and it's all of a sudden just going to be an Instagram post that everyone's going to see and everyone's going to go buy it. <laughs> or I'm going to get an influencer who seems very powerful, and they're going to tell people to use it, and then everyone's going to go buy it. Look, the bottom line is that customer acquisition is more of a science than it is this art that we would think we would hope would happen because, yeah, it might even be an amazing product. But the truth of the matter is the very noisy world, the consumer at every level, whether it's a corporation, you know, in an IT department or it's an end consumer buying a consumer product, we're hearing lots of messages. We have a lot of constraints in the way. We're already probably using a product that would somewhat approximate what you're selling to me. So I think that the hardest part is understanding how much money or time you're going to spend acquiring customers more than you want. And you have to figure out a business model that marries the cost of acquisition with the lifetime value of that customer so that ultimately it makes money for you. Uh, But yeah, I think that that's probably the point where we all sort of hit the 
we'll call it the despair moment of like, oh my God, it's going to cost me that much money to go acquire customers. I don't know how I'm going to come up with the money to do that. Sure. Sure. All right. Another, another, you know, from your experience, what is a question that every founder or entrepreneur should be asking of an advisor or mentor that they're just not asking? So I think that the, the questions that I would you know, like to hear is like, so if I think about back to, you know, how do I better target, find my target customer? You know, if you're an expert that someone's helping in an industry, they should help you on that. Number one, first and foremost is, you know, where are these, you know, likely customers? Do you know them? That's one thing I would like to hear mm-hmm. more of, which I tend not to, I, I think the second thing is um, <laughs> the founder or the entrepreneur should be open to being humble, you know, putting the plan out in front of an advisor and say, please review my plan and give me an objective view as to where you think the holes are in my plan. Um, I think there's a lot of defensiveness which is actually probably comes from the excitement that you're, you're doing. Right. Uh, and then the third is, you know, what other relationships can you introduce me into that would make, you know, sort of the path better for me? Because, you know, a lot of this is relationship driven, even if there are people who are just informed about what you're trying to do rather than almost can get you more business. It's creating that community effect from an advisor. So asking for, some help with those relationships would be great. Yeah, it's I, I, I got in in previous life, I was in some sales roles and one of the best piece of advice I ever had was if you make a sale, the easiest thing to do is ask them who else can benefit from this <laughs> and they can introduce you to everybody you need to be successful. So why would that be any different in a new business than it would be in a, you know, a sales role? I think that's a that's a really great piece of advice. Um, I I have been personally affected in my life by what is known as founder syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would love to hear your take on this. I I think you, you, you mentioned it previously to not be defensive. Um, And I think a lot of times people are very protective of their ideas to the point that founder syndrome is a thing where the founder is right and you are wrong. Um, So what is founder syndrome? First of all, uh, for people that aren't familiar with that. And second of all, how can you as a founder, a CEO, take take an ego out of it, take whatever out of it and put the the success of your company or product above you? Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, if you just type into Google founder syndrome, comes up pretty fast. Uh, effectively, the founder syndrome is this irony. What makes you a founder also becomes the obstacle to your growth. So the founder is most likely somewhat naive, enthusiastic, excited, and very biased about what they believe to be true. So that makes you good. Like, wow, my God, I'm going to go try this because it's the best thing I've ever thought of and everyone should want this. And then what happens is you get some early feedback that says, wow, you're really smart. Look at how successful you are in this early stage. But it's all off of this somewhat captive and somewhat false signaling system, which is when you talk to people who are already inclined, 
It didn't tell you anything new. So, so first and foremost, the founder syndrome isn't necessarily a knock on someone because it is the reason why they founded a company, you know, because it takes, you can't be just logical and, you know, um, pedantic about it and, and move forward. So then what happens though is often the founder can't work through the growth stage because they don't take the input from the people who actually know how to run a business. You know, it was a little bit of like, you know, practice is never really the thing anyone really likes to do. They just like to run in the race. Okay. Mm -hmm. But where you win the race is in the practice. And so the founder sort of just wants to enter the race with their product, but they don't want to do the practice. And so I think what you need to do is have an understanding of what your strengths are and realize that running a business takes more than the strengths of any individual and finding people who can complement you. Now, yeah, we can always be a bit defensive and, you know, we might want someone to prove to us why they think that they know more than us, but we have to be willing to ask and listen if we want our idea to ultimately flourish because the skills required to scale are very different. Is I always thought about like the Navy SEALs, I don't know, maybe there's what, a thousand of them that have ever been made. And there's millions of people in the army. They just have different jobs. Not one's better than the other. And the founder is more like the Navy SEAL. You know, they're working through a lot of stages of complexity and unpredictability, and they bring a skill set that works there. And the people in the army are working on process and logistics and, you know, and scale. And so they're just different skills. And I think recognizing that is an important element to making the founder syndrome you know, work on the strength side, which is makes us want to start something rather than on the struggle side when we get in the way because our skills aren't appropriate to the next stage. Yeah, I, it's it's such a it's such an interesting line to walk as a founder because you have to be passionate and driven in your mission because unless you're that, you're going to get so far off track it'll never come to be, but you have to be somewhat flexible and willing to be agile in your thought process. And it's, it's a fine line and Mm. it's not as easy as it's not as easy as just saying, get over it or move on or stop being so (laughs) defensive. Um, I've, I've worked with a ton of founders in my career and it's, it's amazing the, the span of emotions and passion that they have for their thing. Um, So I, I want to transition just a little bit to kind of the dark side of entrepreneurship, the failures, potentially Mm -hmm. coming up short with your goals. Um, Not every product that anybody has ever thought up and put a lot of time and energy into is going to come to market and be a wild success. Um, So what, what advice, I guess you would say, would you give to a entrepreneur that is facing potential failure that has, realize that their product just isn't going to cut it. Um, and what can they do from there and where can they go both from the mental side of things of, of kind of like, Holy crap, this is not working. And from the business side of things, what's next. One of the the beliefs of the strength of the U S economy is that we celebrate entrepreneurship. And in that means we celebrate failure and we celebrate the learning that comes from that. <clears throat> so I think first and foremost, well, we want every one of our ideas to work. You know, you'll find a bunch of founders who have on their fifth one. So there isn't a dead end. 
at the end of this number one. Let's just remember that, that this is okay. Like you're, the second is, you know, like we talk about this and of course I write about this, but it's the journey, you know, and it's not a euphemism to say, enjoy the journey and the outcome will come, whatever it is. But if you don't enjoy the journey, then, you know, it's not going to ever be satisfying, even if you have some big win. You know, there's never like, I mean, we both know probably people, if you counted money as the way they would measure themselves, who have a lot of it, but they keep going because it's not, there's not an end in this. And so the end isn't defined by either the company succeeded or failed. It's by what we learned and what we went out and tested. Sometimes you're ahead of a market. There's not much you can do about that. You know, you developed something that was 10 years ahead of the way the market wants to adopt. And so, you know, you're just actually a trailblazer and that's the role that you play. And I think learning to love every stage and falling in love with the journey is the way to make it a healthy process. It doesn't mean that we're trying to make an excuse for the lack of maybe commercial success. But there are lots of factors that affect commercial success, some of which you have no control over. You know, if you <clears throat> look at um, the guy who invented peanut butter in the United States and he went through and he competed and back and forth. And at the end of the story, Procter & Gamble decided they were going to come into the market with millions and millions and millions of dollars to compete against him. And you're like, that's somewhat existential. There's not much you can do when they introduced Jif peanut butter into a market and Skippy was the number one product. And before you realize it's no longer number one. So some of it, you just have to accept this is the way that competitive landscape works. Number two, entrepreneurs are celebrated and you're probably going to be better the second or the third time. Number three, enjoy the journey. And number four, if you get a big win, you know, that's cool, but I'm sure it wouldn't even be that satisfying because you're going to want another one. <laughs> that's, that, that's so interesting because it's it, it goes back to this question I was asked a, a long time ago in, in my career, one of my first interviews I've ever had. And the, the man interviewing asked me, do I love to win or hate to fail more? And it's, it's a question to this day that sticks with me. And I yeah. think it's, it's, it's one of those drivers when it comes to entrepreneurship. I think it really channels that, that feeling that if you have a big win, like you almost just expect it and you're like, great. Like I, I had no doubts this is going to happen. Let's do it again. But if you fail, man, does that sting keep with you and drives you um, at least for me to that next thing? I, I, I tend to grow and learn more from a, a, a epic failure than I do from a win because I expected the win. So um, it's, it's so interesting to think about entrepreneurship from, from the win loss growth perspective in, in my mind. But you can, you know, in that, Don, like you can define objectively, what did I learn towards that thing where I didn't win in the way that we might define win as a commercial success? And if part of what we're doing here is learning along the way, <clears throat> then I did achieve a lot. You know, I mean, I learned something. I learned how to manage a business better. I mean, I think like mm. the reason why I get involved now in early stage companies is because I've had some of that pain of the loss. I've been too far ahead of a market. I didn't really understand how to acquire a customer, retain them, talk to them, build product that they wanted, stay relevant, all of that. And I learned that. And I think I'm better at doing something about it now. And so, mm. you know, if you, if there was a dead end here, like, and there are some economies where they don't really so 
celebrate entrepreneurship, then maybe you would stay away from that. But in an environment where there isn't any, you know, like scarlet letter that comes from that, then we should, you know, try it again and see what did we learn? How do we do better the next time? I love that. I think that's a, that's learning is really the root of all successes, especially in my world. You know, I work in learning and development, so I'm always <laughs> going to come back to learning. Um, but it is, if, if, if you're willing to learn, everything's an opportunity for growth. And I think that's a really important thing to, uh, to focus on here. And especially when you are creating something is that just be willing to learn, be willing to admit you don't know something and seek somebody like Joe, who's helping other entrepreneurs seek help, go get advice, especially in areas that you don't know anything about. Um, it's, it's, I guess the advice that I, it's paid off for me in my career and, and Joe, it's, it's been so amazing knowing that, um, you know, one of the companies that you're working with is a close personal friend of mine. And like seeing that growth has been really rewarding for me. And I, I appreciate it. And I know a lot of other entrepreneurs appreciate getting advice and having somebody they can turn to like you. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, the thing that's so interesting, right, is if you're playing an advisory role, like as the saying goes, I don't have a pony in this race, but I do care about the people who are setting out to do this. And so I think you have someone who's really willing to, and, you know, I take nothing, right? I don't ask for a nickel from any of these relationships to sort of create this maybe more um, pure kind of help. But but if someone's willing to help you, boy, we should all listen because, you know, minimally what I could do as the receiver is make a value judgment on why I would or would not agree. And none of us are trying to tell someone what to do. We're trying to just give you enough information so you can make a very you know high level value judgment on what i should do and then then we feel good about it like oh good don decided that's cool at least you factored it into it rather than you didn't even consider it uh, no one's trying to be right in these you know like we want to actually get it right and to do that we need to consider a lot not just our own point of view yeah. Yeah. That's great. And I think that's a, that's a great place to, to, to wrap it up. I know you and I could probably go on for hours on this, uh, but we have to keep it short today. Um, if, if somebody listens to this and they're really inspired to reach out, are you open to that? And oh, yeah, how would people sure. get a hold of you? Oh yeah. I mean, the easy thing, you know, you could always just uh, write a comment back to us. Um, and, you know, you can find me on Instagram, High Performance Life. You could direct message me there, um, you know, or through the Chasing Tomorrow podcast. And then um, I'll even give my email address, jgagnon232 at gmail.com. So J-G-A-G-N-O-N-232 at gmail.com. Happy to help. This is one of the things that really gets me going and love to be involved in any small or big way. And I wish you all the best with your big ideas and have some fun learning along the way. I love it. Well, Joe, thank you so much. And everybody listening, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. Uh, listen to Joe, reach out if you have thoughts or if you want to get your big idea off the ground. Um, he, he is totally genuine in his offer to help for nothing. And, and we appreciate that, Joe. 